Peacock is streaming your favorite shows, movies, live sports, breaking news, exclusive originals, and every live WWE pay-per-view. It's The Office, Chrisley Knows Best, and Peacock original shows like Punky Brewster. Peacock, watch for free, upgrade for more. Stream now at PeacockTV.com. Millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. You cannot shake hands with a clenched fist. Produced by a nuclear exchange would be carried by wind and water and soil and seed to the far corners of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. We're not saying that planet Earth is coming to an end. We're saying that planet Earth is about to be refurbished, spaded under, and have another chance to serve as a garden for another civilization. Most of the people in here are just your reflections. They're your mistakes. 1776 will commence again if you try to take our firearms. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened. You are what you repeatedly do. Therefore, excellence ought to be a habit, not an act. Your lives and the credibility of the United Nations is at stake. Epstein didn't kill himself. The reason this is such an interesting time is not only because we're on the threshold of the end of this civilization. They're trying to take you out with bullshit. The experience of the past two years has proven beyond doubt that no nation can appease the Nazis. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. In the language of the US Department of Defense, these are unidentified aerial phenomena. Roswell's a very interesting place with a lot of people that would like to know what's going on. Uh, there is very compelling evidence that we, uh, we may not be alone. This is the Garden of Doom. Welcome, everybody, to episode 49 of Garden of Doom. And today we're welcoming back a prior guest. You all probably remember Andrew Goff. Uh, I believe that show is titled Into the Great Wide Inner, which I thought was very clever. Um, today, Andrew is back with us again after his successful appearance at the Nephilim Anthropology Conference, um, where he wowed them. And he's still continuing his work. And for those of you who listen to, to the past show, you already know that he's here to talk about uh, uh, bees. And he's going to talk to us in the future episode about uh, sort of the true or origins or a nutshell of not a nutshell, but the uh, impetus for what created the Da Vinci Code. But today is going to be about bees. Now, if you didn't listen to the prior show, you probably don't need to to follow along here you definitely don't this is standalone but i still recommend it to you because if you listen to more shows you'll probably find more one of the nice things about this show is that i'd say 90 percent of the shows are not time sensitive they're sort of eternal so anyway today andrew's going to talk to us about humanity's esoteric and long history with bees yes bees bzz, bees honeybees bumblebees all those kinds of the yellow jackets 
All the kinds of bees that scientists are talking about are the most important uh, creature on Earth and that they're going extinct. And if they go extinct, we're going to go extinct and all that other stuff. I don't even know if he's going to get into that or not. And he's not going to tell me right now because I'm going to learn with you. So, Andrew, please say hello to the folks. Tell them a little bit about yourself. And then we can get right into bees from antiquity. And you'll take us through present day. Fantastic. Jeff, thanks so much for having me back. And hello, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Excited to uh, to talk to you uh, about bees. And uh, I should say, you know, I'm not a beekeeper. I come at this from a, a very different perspective of more of the, the history of the esoteric symbolism and veneration of the honeybee. And um, I suppose one of the questions I get asked the most is, how did you get into bees? <laughs> You know, um, it's not, I mean, bees are great and we all love them and know about them, but how would you get into sort of the esoteric aspect of them? So maybe Jeff, if it's okay, I could, I could kind of, um, share with the listeners, uh, how that happened. Yeah, sure. I, why not? It's your story. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, um, came across, uh, a Kabbalist, uh, in Catalan, so the north of Spain, and uh, I was privileged enough to to meet her and be invited to study with her. And, um, bless her, she's no longer with us, and she was in her 70s at the time. And you have to be invited to study with her. She has mentored uh, Jean Cocteau, the uh, artist, uh, grandmaster of the Briary of Zion, and, and uh, accomplished initiate of, of many sorts, and also Salvador Dali. So when this woman invites you to study with her, you just say, yes, please, thank you. And I went down to her Catalan home for the first study weekend. And we were going to study, ironically, what we're going to talk about next time, Jeff, Renle Chateau. And I was really excited to talk about Renle Chateau. And while we were having breakfast, before we started, a bee flew across our breakfast table and wouldn't leave. And we got to talking about bees. And honestly, I had no idea other than there's bee goddesses out there and um, bees are cool and vital to the preservation of humankind. But I didn't know the esoteric aspect of them. So from that weekend onwards, we spent about three years um, uh, studying bees. And if people go to my website, they'll see uh, part one, two, three of uh, the bee and lots of other kind of more detailed articles about bees. All of that comprises about 15% of what she shared with me because the rest of it is just too weird for me to even digest. I think, well, you have a healthy appetite, so I'm really interested in, like, how she did it. It's funny, because when you mentioned the uh, Kabbalists, um, it really is an honor and a privilege to it. I don't pretend to know this woman, but I have been looking for someone to talk to uh, Kabbalah with. And I, foolish me, I thought that if I just contact enough Orthodox Jews or rabbis or whatever, they, they, they get me in that direction. No, absolutely not. First of all, most of them don't know anything about it either. They're just like the rest of us. They just happen to have stronger religious beliefs. Finally, I got to someone who said, listen, nobody who's really into Kabbalah is going to talk to you about it. They're just not going to talk to you about it. it it's, it's their thing. Finally, I reached out to a friend of mine in Israel who 
from I've known her since college and we haven't really talked in 30 years. So first thing I do is hit her up for a favor. And she put me in touch with a rabbi who said, sure, I'm going to talk. I'll talk to you. I'm going to be in, in the States next week. So why don't we talk then? Um, but I'm still not sure the extent of that conversation and if he'll be willing to be uh, recorded and be a guest or, or what. So uh, I'm still on that path. Uh, and, and I certainly hope it doesn't take me three years because, uh, as you know, my shows are generally, you know, yeah. 60 to 120 minutes. So I'm just looking for 101. But uh, anyway, not to make your story mine, but I, I definitely uh, appreciate that you being invited to study with a sort of a high level or or master Kabbalist. I don't know what the right term is, but that uh, somebody thought highly of you. Yeah. And, you know, it, it wasn't easy. Um, you did 15 hours a day. And uh, if you had to take a comfort break or you were just wanted to look at your phone for five minutes, you were reprimanded. You better pay attention and stay focused because uh, it's a fire hose coming at you. And I was privileged to have that fire hose, but it, it, uh, I would leave Catalan after those study weekends absolutely exhausted. Um, so bless her. And, you know, one of the things we're all aware of is that in the last um, six, seven years, we've been uh, aware of the fact that bees have been dying. And, and we hear less about that today than we did just four or five years ago. Seems like, right? Hopefully. Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting that Albert Einstein, uh, although nobody can prove he said it, it's attributed to him. Um, if the bees disappear off the surface of the globe, the man will have four years left. And, you know, that's very, very, very true. Um, you, bees provide obviously honey, which it's nutritional, medicinal qualities. And the stingers have been used for acupuncture for thousands of years in China. Uh, all the crops we have, you know, I think again, it was China who said it would take two people to do the job of one bee to manually pollinate. And then there's wax effigies, the ancient world and modern world. You go to Madame Tussauds, so you have, uh, wax figures, you know, where does that wax come? It comes from bees? But I, I think the biggest risk, um, well, it's all a risk, right? I mean, mm -hmm. but the fact that bees are role models and, and that's, that's what the ancients really understood. Um, and I'd love to go through some examples of that, but you know, j just, just to kind of, can I guess this. some, can I guess some before you get started? And I wasn't yeah. planning to do that, but it didn't even occur to me until this very moment, but I mean, there's a queen bee, and I know that in the ancient, the the, the 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 you know there was the sacred feminine, and not like the Da Vinci, but you know, Mother Earth, Mother God. It was very matriarchal. At some point, it be, it became more king of the gods versus the 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 mother of the gods, and and is is that where we're part of it anyway? Exactly. I mean the. Uh goddess element um is is huge and of course surprise surprise it's observed by the patriarchy like it always is but there's many and even the masons so what we'll come on to hopefully um they refer to the king bee now either that's just being a, a little cheeky or there was a time when people thought that the uh, the top bee in the hive was a male 
or at least I think in ancient times they knew it was a, a, a female, but in, in certain times of history that wasn't clearly understood or accepted anyways. Uh, but yeah, well, uh, you're spot on with that. Um, but you know, Rudolf Steiner doesn't get enough credit. Everyone talks about um, Einstein and his famous quote on bees, but Steiner was this esoteric giant, a gentleman um, of many, 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 many um, masterful skills. And, you know, he talked about how the consciousness, consciousness of a beehive not the individual bees, but how they all exist together uh, is of such a high nature of cooperation that humankind won't approach that for a very, very, very long time until it's in the last stage of human development. Will humans be able to have that altruistic sort of um, view of the world? But Steiner said something really interesting. He did these lectures in 1923. Uh, and they're published in a book. And and in the lectures, there's somebody in the lecture hall who's always arguing with him. <laughs> and he publishes what this guy says because it's all recorded. And Steiner is saying that based upon the way they're starting to artificially feed the queen, changing the way nature does it, and he said that's been going on for 15 years. So starting in 1908, this new way of feeding the queen, he said in 100 years, exactly the bees will start to die. Really? And what happened in 2008, 60% of the bees in the U.S. had died. So Steiner made this incredible prediction. I mean, we all talk about are the bees dying because of um, 3G, 4G, uh, you know, all these different colony collapse disorder, all these intelligent theories. But here's Steiner saying it's going to take 100 years, but this is going to happen, and this is why. So very interesting. But the bees are still here. I think we're okay for a little longer. hope so. Yeah, I know there's been a lot of efforts to um, spur their populations on, and I, I think it was France that, that uh, probably about 20 years ago they were they had almost like no bees, and then I think about 10 years ago they proudly reported that their their bee population had recovered like 80 percent to where it was, and so whatever they did uh, obviously can be reproduced uh, around the world. Yeah, I mean. They're so resilient, uh, and, and, and part of their veneration in, in deep antiquity comes from the fact that there's bees 100 million years old that have been petrified in their own amber as though they've been you know, secreted with their own honey. And, and, that, and that irony was not lost on the ancients when they would find a bee frozen in time in amber. It just was imbued with, wow, that's kind of cool, that's special. You know, and then we find things like the, the honey-hunting uh, cave of the spider, 15,000 years old in Spain, showing man you know, harvesting honey. Uh, no surprise. I mean, it, it's such an incredibly um, valuable commodity, and there's so much you could use it for. But we kind of take for granted that the ancients, you know, were also 
harvesting it like like we do today. But but the difference is they really venerated it. And one of the reasons why, to your point earlier with the goddesses, that early bee veneration is not recognized as bee veneration is because the thing that the ancients loved about the bee was the fact that it has the waggle dance. This incredible sort of figure eight dance that it does. Um, and it's how it communicates to the other bees where the food is. So it goes out from the hive, finds some food, comes back and dances in order to give them that sat nav to find the honey. So the ancients knew that. And when you look at, and this is what our archaeologists say, so this is not me concluding this, that these really arcane images from prehistory, you're talking 10,000 BCE, of dancing goddesses on cave walls are actually bee goddesses. Oh. And later they morph into the famous Greek goddesses like Athena that we know about and, and others. Um, but really it starts way, way back in time with very uh, obscure, obscure images. And, you know, a couple really good examples uh, of that are in Australia, there's, there's, you know, Aboriginal caves that have nothing but honeycomb design on it. And they date to like 8,000 BCE, you know, that's unbelievable. And then you have the oldest city uh, that archaeologists agree was a city in Chatelhuac in, in Turkey. And what do you find? Another huge honeycomb wall in their most sacred temple. Uh, and we find, especially in antiquity, that bees are associated with bulls. Where you see bees, you see bulls. Um, and it's probably because uh, apis... Uh, bee in, uh, apis in Latin means bee. And, and so there's a lot of association with bees and bulls. Uh, and, and we find that most everywhere. Yeah. Chattel Hewitt also had the first ever halo. The first time you've ever seen a halo in art. Um, you see it in religious drawings all the time now, right? Sure. But this is the first time it's ever been shown. And it's, it's 8,000 plus years old. And the halo is made of bees. Oh. And, and and the person wearing the halo is kind of off their head a little bit, right? And and the other element of bees, uh, especially in antiquity, is that the honey was hallucinogenic. Oh, what honey is that? Many parts of the world, uh, it was hallucinogenic. The Black Sea, jumping ahead a little bit in um, modern-day Turkey, there's a classic account of the Romans coming in and they've completely outnumbered everybody uh, who's, you know, of the local tribe, as, as it were. And the locals know they're, they don't stand a chance. The Romans are coming. There, there's tens of thousands of them. But they're hungry and they're thirsty. So they leave out these hallucinogenic honeycombs. And the Romans are like, oh, thank you. And they eat them. And they start tripping and the local tribe comes back and just annihilates them. It's brilliant. What, what battle is that? I've got to look into that. Oh, it's, it's, it's really cool. Um, I'm just thinking here what um, I'm trying to recall what that was called and give me a moment. I'll look through my notes and um, I'll be able to, to 
pull that out, but it's a really, really cool. I was um, while you're looking for that, you, you said that the the word for bee in Latin is apis. And how is that how is that tied to the bull? Was the bull like the representation of the man and the bee was the female, or am I just putting things together that that you know Yeah, no, it gets it gets really, really weird. I'll I'll come on to that when we talk about Egypt a little bit, because that is the golden age of, of bee veneration. And there's so much there. I've just found my notes. This is this is something that um was in sixty-seven BCE. Um, it's the mad honey, uh, and, and Mithridites. So the Roman soldiers invade the Black Sea region under General Pompey. And, and, you know, so the, the locals, uh, King Mithridates, uh, is secretly lining the Romans' path with these chunks of the mad honeycomb. And, and, you know, they just don't have a chance. And to this day, you know, they can't, you can't buy honey from uh, that part of the world. I mean, it's not for sale in the supermarket. You can go there and buy some because it is just really, really potent because of uh, the, the rare kind of flowers and, and, and uh, floral that they, they have there. Um, so, so we have all this kind of murky prehistory stuff, right? I mean, and, you know, and what I would ask the readers to kind of be patient with as we move up to more demonstrable eras where you, the symbolism is just so in your face, literally, is, is the fact that this is very visual. So go to my, my website, andrewgoff.com, take a look at my B articles, and you'll be like, ah, right, yeah, got it. That's, I see it now. Um, and, and, you know, just to, to meander for a little bit longer in, in prehistory, if you look at um, Sumerians, there's all kinds of poems about um, bees and how amazing they are and honey and everything. You know, so it's a big part of their culture. But now the old European culture, the, the, the Vinca, B-I-N-C-A culture, is the one that is acknowledged as, as being the precursor to the Sumerians. And when you look at them, it's like looking at uh, a carved stone uh, that they would draw that looks like an alien head. It looks like an alien, and people probably think, oh, wow, they were aliens back then. No, just like with the Mayan gods, they have these big bulging eyes because they embody the king bee they embody the drone who's going to impregnate the king bee and is 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 rich in fertility um so it's just amazing how these ancient cultures and the modern ones the king bee or the queen bee pardon the king bee or the queen bee well the masons refer to it as the king bee but okay. the mayans and this uh ancient vincha culture um it's the, the drones. It's the males that they're portraying themselves as, the mighty strong males who are going to impregnate the queen. So and, can, can I interject again for a second? This is a question. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the, 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 the site Earth Ancients and, and Gaia and, and all of those um, organizations and, and sites and whatever, but they, they routinely publish pictures of a lot of these images from Mesoamerica, but also India and other parts of the ancient world, pretty much everywhere, throughout Asia, everywhere. And, and they have these images that you're describing, sort of bulbous heads, big eyes. And, you know, sometimes they're said, well, the, the, these are the ancient greys or these are aliens. Others say these are humans with, you know, these are clearly like astronaut or deep sea diving helmets. They're 
evidence of technology. And what you're saying is, no, they're bees. Um, so, so literally the answer might, and I understand these might not all be the same thing, of course. I mean, that, that would be way too simple, simple, but the answer might be literally right below our nose if we're outside having a picnic. I mean, the, the answer to that question might be bees and insects rather than something, you know, bigger than that or scarier than that. Yeah, and, and, and to your point, I, I do believe that there is, uh, has been, continues to be uh, intervention from um, other advanced races on Earth, and, and their images have been recorded by ancient cultures. At the same time, I do believe um, that some of those aren't aliens, but rather um representations of kind of their heroes. These these bees were, you know, civilizations that recognized the value of bees flourished. Those who didn't perished. It's just that simple. Um, it's, it's so interesting that even, you know, I've written extensively about the Mormons. And if you look at the Jardai tradition of the Mormons, they're they say we took bees from the ancient land in, in the east and went all the way across Europe, cross a boat to to up to America with their bees. They couldn't exist without them. Um, they were so so vital. And you look at old, um, you look at places like Malta, which means you know Malta. The word means honey in ancient Greek. Uh, they have a two thousand year old apiary, so they've been doing this bee harvesting for honey harvesting for a long time. But they also have the bee with the largest abdomen in the world. Now, I can't tell you why that is, but <laughs> the bee's abdomen is so much bigger than any place else. And what do we find in Malta? The world's largest goddess statues. The goddesses are huge. And not only the statues of them, but the temples are shaped in a goddess shape. And the hypogeum, which is over 3,000 years um, BCE, has honeycomb, just like Chattel Hewitt, just like Australia, designs on the wall um, with a real acoustic sound that lends itself towards what people describe as a, a buzzing sound if you meditate in there. So very, very interesting. And, and, and even, you know, even Moses, uh, if you want to get biblical about it a little bit, you know, um, there's there's elements of, of, of hand, but you know uh, uh, maybe a better example is is, is Noah. Um, Noah, poor guy, you know he has all these animals on a boat, and it must have been very stressful. Um, what does the Bible tell us? The first thing he does when he gets to land, he plants a vineyard. The poor guy needs a drink, um, <laughs> and then and then in the Bible, it's very disrespectfully chronicles the fact that he was soon found naked and drunk in his tent, passed out, unable to reach his bed. Well, listen, if anybody and earned it, it's him. If anyone earned it, it's, it's him. You know what? So if you were lucky enough to plant grapes um, and it would take you one, maybe two seasons before you got it right so the fact that in very short order, he was able to have a drink and get kind of, you know, kind of drunk tells you that, that, that it's mead. Um, and, and, and so he's drinking, he would have had hives on the ark 
and he's drinking this hallucinogenic, probably very concentrated at that point, um, meat. And the ancient word for swarm, when the bees swarm, right, was the same as grape. So it's just interesting that when the Bible says he planted a vineyard, and they use that word that could actually mean swarm, maybe he's just having some mead, which was in his boat. Um, that makes sense. And, you know, I've uh, people talk about um, Noah's Ark, where... Where was it? Um, well, Mount Ararat. Well, no, actually, uh, all the literature says the mountain range of Ararat. And Judy Dagg, uh, D-A-G-H, is the place that scholars believe um, was, was Noah's Ark. And it's right on the border of Turkey and Syria and Iran. I've been there. And uh, it's... Amazing. I mean, there is a, a Hittite statue of the king with a piece of the ark. So this appears to be the place. And if you go up to the top, uh, the place where they believe Noah landed, beehives everywhere. It's just poetic, you know, I think. Um, it kind of fits with that story. Yeah, well, you can't go there now safely because isn't that Kurdistan, basically? And there's uh, always yeah. there's, uh, like a constant war going on. No, not good. Not good. But really, okay, so move ahead to Egypt. We all know Egypt, right? I mean, it, it is just uh, something we've all studied, probably have been to. But nobody talks about the association of bees with Egypt. And you look at the delta area where the pyramids are, that's called Tabidi, which means the land of the bee. The pharaoh's title, you know, his title is beekeeper. There's a picture of a bee in his royal signature. And look at the death mask of a pharaoh. Look at Tutankhamun. Everyone can picture that. What do you have? Black and yellow horizontal stripes. And if you want to identify a bee goddess, uh, we kind of skipped over that because it's visual and I didn't really want to talk about it. But bee goddesses are wearing skirts with horizontal stripes and they're typically um, yellow and black. And, and, and that's what the, the, the pharaohs of Egypt wore, I mean, unambiguously. And if you go over all the temples, there's pictures of bees. The sedge in the bee is, is um, you know, the royal title of, of, of the king. So you look for early kind of, well, how did that happen? I mean, how did bees become so important um, in Egypt? And you have to look at who brought Egyptian culture to uh, the, the, the valley and, and, and to the Nile Valley. And, and the guy who did is Min, and he's master of the wild bees, and he's got these two huge plumes coming out of his head like a bee. And I've been to the Eastern Desert. Um, it's off limits, but uh, with Egyptologists, you can go from Luxor to uh, the Dead Sea, and it's all sculptures of people with big plumes on their head, much like much like a bee. They're paying homage to, to um, the queen bee. You probably just saw me scribbling. And before I forget, because my handwriting's horrible when I scribble, I, I really, really should get that under control. You said that the, that the title for the king of the Egyptians leader is beekeeper. Are you saying that Pharaoh yeah. literally means beekeeper? That was his, that was his royal title. Um, 
and and you know um, I'm trying you know so because uh, I have heard uh, two other definitions of Pharaoh and so I don't you know having a third certainly is uh, you know first of all that can mean more than one thing but I've heard great house is Pharaoh I've also heard star child is Pharaoh and now beekeeper is Pharaoh beekeeper oh, bee, beekeeper is unambiguously um, uh, his title in fact in his administration, there was a title, a, a position of office called the sealer of the honey and the overseer of the beekeepers. You know, those were offices like secretary of state, you know, um, and, and, and a very coveted position. So it just tells you how incredibly important beekeeping was in ancient Egypt. And, you know, when you look at some of the art uh, that's rendered on the tombs, the tomb of Rekmira, uh, the tomb of Pabasa going back, you know, 24, 2500 BCE. Uh, well, actually, that's not true. I mean, much older than that. Um, these tombs show honey harvesting at a really advanced level. So it's four and a half thousand years ago. Four and a half thousand years ago, they had ovens. They were baking um honey bread and one of the famous uh, one of my favorite images in the british museum is this incredible relief of a king one of the last kings of the 26 dynasties so it's getting relatively modern for the egyptian period and he's sitting on one knee and he's got his hand out and he's holding what looks like a stone and i've a big tall stone kind of um oval shape and i've been standing and looking at that and tours have come up and the tours describe it as this is the philosopher's stone <laughs> and the king is worshiping the philosopher's stone and i'm like oh come on first of all the king in this relief is naked and bald now beekeepers knew painfully so that the bees in ancient egypt were the most violent and nasty in the world and they were really um easily scared so yet beekeepers shave their head and don't wear any clothes when you're approaching the bees because that will spook them so this guy in this relief you can find the picture on my website he's just totally naked on one knee and he's got a honeycomb in his hand it's not the philosopher's stone um and right. again his title is beekeeper so it, it just completely makes sense that, that's interesting. I mean, listen, when we think of beekeepers, we think of people in big suits with the netted hats to protect themselves from being stung. But uh, you're saying in ancient times, it, it was a better strategy to be basically bald and, and naked. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, well, and it gets, you know, staying with Egypt a little longer, it gets a little weirder because we have Sayas. I've been to Sayas. And the Sayas is where... Um, the only account of Atlantis, the only one ever came from, um, the Greek lawgiver Solon goes there and he comes away with this legend of Atlantis. But Sais is the place where the goddess Neith lived and she lived in uh, the house of the bee. Um, and, 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 and she was the mother of Ra who cried bees as tears so that's interesting. And, you know, I'm a big megalithic um, enthusiast. I live in Britain. I love going to these sites like Stonehenge and Avery. And, 
I've been to hundreds of them for over 20 years. It's kind of my thing. And I've noticed, like a lot of people, that they're not round. These guys are brilliant. The stones are aligned to the solstice here and um, aligned with that mountain over there. Why are they not round? Why are they just teardrop shape? Well, when I looked into it, the god or goddess who is in charge of circles is Ra. Uh, the god who cries bees is tears. And these teardrops, it, you know, it's hard to explain, but, but the, the, the salt magical papyrus says something to the effect that when Ra weeps and the water from his eyes flows to the ground, it turns into bees. So you can see just how weirdly uh, connected all of this is. And the thought being that maybe somehow stone circles, and you have those in Egypt, um, Naptoplea is one of them in the way south in Egypt. Maybe they are related to bees. Well, there are stone circles there. They're finding them everywhere, including in the Great Lakes. And I know in Southern Africa as well. So, uh, yeah, I mean, bees are pretty universal. So uh, that sort of makes sense. I, w I thought you were going somewhere else with the shape of the tear uh, being also similar to the shape of, you know, in, in a very symbolic way of maybe a pregnant woman. Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's interesting. That could that could apply as well. Um, and, you know, holding the thought about uh, the goddess Neith, who lived in the house of the bee, when the Egyptians wrote her name, they drew a bee. And the ancient texts say that Neith called the queen bee using a reed flute. And one of the things that's really interesting is the queen bee does something called piping. And you can find this on, on YouTube. She makes this incredibly weird noise. And guess what it sounds like? A trumpet. <laughs> um, and, and it's the sound that the queen bee makes, you know, when it's being introduced to the hive. Here I am. I'm in charge now. So the, the ancient, the first instruments we have in Egypt are quote-unquote magical trumpets um, of, of Tutankhamun. And they make that same sound. So you're, you're, you're ushering, ushering in royalty. Here comes the king and queen to this day with horns that are emulating the sound that the queen bee would make when she introduced herself to the hive. Okay. Um, you mentioned the city earlier. I think it was Sais. Yeah. Where, where in Egypt is that? So that's, that's in the Delta. So if you're in Cairo, you're going to go north and a little bit to the west for about a 90-minute drive, kind of heading up towards Alexandria. You know, it is where um, um, uh, Solon went and got the story of Atlantis. And then 200 years later, Plato writes about it. So um, some other chap called Krantor went there in, the, uh, in between that time, validated everything that uh, – that Solon had to say. And what's interesting is as they kind of dismantled it, the farmers took the stones away to use them for fences and stuff. In modern times, one of the stones that they took away from Sais to nearby Rosetta was the Rosetta stone. Ah. So 
I find it really interesting that the one place, that the only one place where the legend of Atlantis comes from is the place where the Rosetta Stone that gave us that unique first insight in hieroglyphics also came from. And you have uh, Need who lived in the House of the Bee, um, who was the mother of Ra, who cried bees' tears, and Osiris is buried in the mansion of the bee in Sayus. Is there like a ton of excavation and research and archaeologists all going through Sayus or, or no? Because I mean, I would think they'd be all over that place. Oh, gosh. You know, there's one, Penny Wilson, and she's amazing. One. And they're building so fast and so rapidly homes over all of it. It's, it's really, it's gone. It's going to be gone from history, I'm afraid. Um, but, you know, you asked earlier about um, the bull, and you know, oh, right. Apis in Latin means bee, and and there's just plain weirdness associated with the bull uh, and and the bee. There's this old kind of saying that if you take a bull, uh, which is dead, and you bury it in the sand, so only its horns are above the sand, bees come up. And it's part of a uh, series of big animal association with bees. Do you know Lyle's Golden Syrup? Um, I think that's a worldwide brand. It might, might be a British brand. But it shows uh, a lion lying dead with bees coming out of its torso, which, which comes from the Book of Judges, which, which talks about the fact that when, when Samson killed the lion, Bees came out, you know, of it. So there's this uh, strand from history where bees are coming out of bulls, bees are coming out of lions. And the ritualistic slaughter of bulls, I mean, they, they venerated the bulls big time. The Serapium in Egypt has these amazing, huge, megalithic uh, burial chambers for bulls. But the ritualistic slaying of bulls you see a lot in um, what the Romans called Mithraism. And in Spain, the bull rings, where they kill the bulls, a lot of them are built on ancient Mithra temples. So you have this continued tradition of killing the bull and bees come out. That's crazy. Mithras is another story that at some point I'm going to want to get into on uh, on this show, maybe, you know, in 2022. Uh, I, we'll talk about that another time. You, admit, you might be the guy for that, too. I don't know. Um, but the the just uh, I'm warning the audience, uh, or if you want to get a preview, Google Mithras and, and read his or her origin story and tell me it doesn't sound familiar. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And think about the comparisons with the Freemasonry and see if you can figure out what the amazing symbolism of the ritualistic slaughter of the bee, of the bee, of the bull is. Um, it's about 60, 50 or 60 BCE. All of a sudden, Rome is showing the bull, uh, bull's throat being cut. But also, as we're talking about Egypt, in Dendera, the Dendera calendar uh, shows the procession of one constellation. Like we're just leaving Pisces now and going into Aquarius. But the short version is 
what do we think the ritualistic slaughter of the bull represents? The end of Taurus. Ah. Um, so very, very interesting. But just to kind of sum up the the, the Egyptian stuff, because there's so much more. Um, Egyptian uh, images show kings and elite with these plumes like a bee. The Egyptian headdress, go look at Tutankhamun. It's a bee. His title's beekeeper. He lives in the land of the bee. Um, and you have that jed pillar, which is that kind of... Um, Oh, how would you describe it? It's 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 got these circular bits on the top of a, like a handle, and I argue it's a honey dripper. Um, the pharaoh holds these these tool two tools called a crook and a flail in each hand. A lot of times you'll see an Egyptian holding like a staff. Look at the staff. It has um, two prongs on the bottom side, and the, on the upper side it has this this sort of slanty thing that you would use to pull the hives um, honey out. It's all about beekeeping and, and it's just completely forgotten. And, and the last bit on Egypt I'll leave you with is um, the Egyptians learned, you know, so much um, from the Minoans and the Minoans were unbelievable beekeepers. Um, I think the Minoans were the drug lords of the Aegean. They were growing poppies, which makes opium and heroin, and they were harvesting bees. I think they were putting them in concoctions. I say that because if you look at the recreation of the Minoans' own boats on the floor, is nothing but circular little um, crevices where you would put a glass. And, and, and there were drugs all throughout uh, the ancient world. I, I regress. Sorry. The Minoan word for bee is sphinx. Oh. Well, it's yeah. the sphinx, a bee goddess. And when you look at a lot of the Greek sphinxes, they all have wings. What are sphinx doing with, with, with you know, looking like bees with that horizontal um, stripe abdomen, which is a real sign that you're talking about that you're talking about uh, a beat goddess. Yeah, I'm going to have to look into that because the only, I mean, the only Sphinx that I see is the image that we all see, which is, of course, eroded and, you know, sort of, you know, in sand color. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to take a look at that. But that, that's really interesting. Uh, and, yeah, I, I was familiar with your, your uh, drug lords uh, of the ancients. I, I, I forgot that it was the Minoans, but... That's that's pretty cool because they they you know it's sort of a small island and they sort of have a over uh, disproportionate effect on history and it would make sense if they had something of value that they invented first that that you know that would carry on for a few generations. And you know they, they just discovered an amazing uh, apiary uh, in in Israel a few years ago and they dated to within. I forget the date, but it's just shortly after the Thera eruption completely wiped out Crete. So if Crete, and no one knows where they got their money from. Nobody knows where they got their money from. Well, you do. You just if, said it. <laughs> if Crete had these incredible concoctions, and we know the Egyptians were doing opiates, um, where did they get this from? So on Crete, they're growing uh, poppies, opium, heroin, hallucinogenic honey, and they put them in these boats. 
But if the civilization is wiped out, there goes the drug supply. So within just a few years of the drug supply being wiped out, Israel creates this really amazing apiary. And, and in the apiary, they discover all kinds of esoteric stuff, dancing goddesses' images, and, and, and just things that you would expect to find in a temple, but it's in an apiary. Wow. And so apiary comes from the, the word for bee. Apis, right? So apis, that's, is that where the word apiary comes from? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, the most famous artifact of the Bronze Age comes from, from Crete, and, and it's the, the Malia bee pendant, two bees facing each other um, with a bit of pollen that they're holding between them, and they each have something hanging from their wing and, and their feet. And it was discovered in Malia, uh, and it's just priceless gold craftsmanship, like nothing you've ever seen. But when I studied it, Malia is not kind of aligned with, directly aligned with Thera. And the Minoans knew from history that Thera erupts. And when Thera erupts, it's game over for them because 60 kilometers straight down, um, they're going to get tsunamis. And I think the Malia bee pendant, we know that, that when Crete was um, wiped out for the last time by Thera, it wasn't like just one massive hit. It was like, boom, here it comes. And then 20 years later, again, and they knew that once it woke up, it was going to continue. So I think that the bee pendant of Malia was a sacrificial offering um, to to the gods uh, for Thera not to obliterate them. Wow. Okay, that that is a lot. So we are time wise. Where are we now? Uh, in if by time wise, I mean history, historical time. Um, yeah. Where where are we? So we Manoa is what about. 3,000, 3,500 years ago? Yeah, so it kind of predates the uh, Egyptians for the um, conventional chronology. But really, we, we kind of, you know, move into the the, the Greek era, and, yeah. and uh, there's so much there. You know, the, the great um, naval stone of Delphi, the center of the world, this amazing stone. What does it show us? The whole stone this concave shape, it's actually a physical beehive. It has a hole in it where bees can go, but it shows crisscrossing bees going all around the stone. I mean, it, you couldn't make it up, it, but nobody ever thinks about this, this continuing thread. Apollo appointed Pytha, the, the, uh, the, the Delphic bee, and, and the high priestess uh, in Delphi, where they made all these prophecies, when they were off their head, right? You know, the, the priestesses would be given loads of drugs, probably mostly opium and hallucinogenic honey once again. And then the priest would um, decipher what they were saying. And, and, and all of the people involved were related to bees in their titles. I mean, it, it sounds nuts, but it's, it's just, um, it's, it, it's something that reflects just how important 
from an esoteric, but also from a psychedelic drug standpoint, they were. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, wow. So I had no idea that bees were so important on so many different levels. Um, but th this is really crazy. Um, but, but interesting. And when you frame it the way you did it, it sort of makes sense. Well, and, and you look at um, so many ways it's been commemorated. Beehive huts, you know, you, in, in, in Greece, um, in, uh, I lived in Turkey for a while, so you go to Haran, beehive huts, uh, Saudi Arabia, there's beehive huts everywhere. Um, you go down to Rumla Chateau, which we'll talk about soon, there's yeah. beehive huts. And, and yeah, there's some reasons why you'd want to shape it that way, but it's as though they're paying homage to it. And not just in an ancient way. If you look at some of the biblical stuff, it gets really weird because Jesus was known as the ethereal bee. We've all seen bees on that famous statue of Artemis. Her priests were called Essians, or king bees and and the place where revelation was written where the virgin mary uh spends her final years uh, its bronze age name uh is b we know know it as esephus um and there's other clues like the book of luke talks about that you know the first food eaten by christ after his resurrection is a honeycomb honey is mentioned 61 times in the king james bible uh, one of my favorites is, you know, John the Baptist survived in the wilderness on wild honey. And on his feast day in England, in Wiltshire, a crop circle appeared of a bee. <laughs> coincidence, I'm sure. That doesn't sound like it. I'm, I'm not sure I'm believing any coincidences anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, again, the biblical stuff, um, the oldest poem, the oldest song, uh, is uh, to do with Deborah, and 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 Deborah D B R E um, in Judges five contains one of the oldest passages, and Deborah is a, a bee goddess, so it's the song of Deborah, but it's really the song of the bee, and she is this incredible queen bee like figure, and if you go back and you read that, uh, it just sounds like someone's speaking about a bee. Wow. <laughs> So we've got the Bible. We've got uh, we've got books far older than that. We have evidence. We have names of cities, names of titles. We've got uh, statues. We have images dating back millennia. Uh, yeah, this is quite a trail. Um, and who who was the one who got you onto this? Who was the person that you read or heard from that said that you said? I want to look into this or, I mean, I, I heard the origin story where you were studying with the, in Catalan. Um, but once you looked into it, what was the first source you said that said, I got to dig into this more deeply? You know, there's, um, amazing insight from beekeepers. And I've always promised myself that I would, I would look after bees and become a beekeeper. And I haven't, I've, I've, I'm, I'm close to people who are, and their insights are incredible. But Eva Crane, um, a British, uh, yeah, she's such a was such an amazing woman, an archaeologist, uh, a beekeeper, and she went all over the world chronicling, you know, the kinds of things that we're talking about now. 
And, and I just found it um, really interesting because when I'm studying with the capitalists and Catalan, we don't have any of that source material. It's, it's all just Kabbalah uh, and really esoteric stuff. So to come back and find that there have been real scholars who have validated all that uh, was, was very comforting to me. Um, but, you know, what, what's even weirder is it, it continues uh, into modern times. Um, look at Napoleon. You know, what was his nickname? The Bee. And, and all his robes uh, are full of bees. Why did he give himself the nickname of the Bee? You know, he's paying homage to the long-haired Merovingian kings that came before him, like Childric, uh, where they found 300 gold bees in his tomb. So he's continuing this tradition. He may not completely understand it, uh, but even Pierre Plantard in, in, in France, um, arguably uh, Grandmaster of the Priory Zion or the creator of an incredible hoax, he has a bee in his coat of arms. The, uh, the, the, the shape of the, the country of France, if you draw a straight line across all its edges, creates a honeycomb, and, and that wasn't lost on them. And the most interesting thing, I think, is the fleur-de-lis is a bee. And you'd have to see how it's a stylized bee, and there's art that, that shows you how it goes from a bee to a fleur-de-lis, but it's just one step. And, and, and so they also acknowledge that the Florida Lee is a bee. Okay. Wow. I, I never saw that. Uh, but is it, okay, so now I'm trying to visualize in my head. Is it like upside down, the, the dot at the bottom is the head, or is, is it the other way around? Well, the, the, the bit at the top uh, is the head, and it's got the, 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 the wings. wings. Sure. And, and, and when you look at it, you're like, well, that's not really a bee. But if you look at the artist's sort of phased uh, drawing of it, it's really easily and clearly morphed in, into a bee. And and you think, okay, that, that sounds a bit silly. But you look at the most famous um, occult organization in the history of humankind, and, and that, for lack of a better term, is the Illuminati, which is Adam Wishwaplet. Um, so this is May Day, May 1st, 1776. He comes out with, and that's Labor Day, right? That's Workers' Day. That's the Bees' Day, the Worker Bees' Day. He comes out with the Illuminati, and he launches the Illuminati. He delayed it a while because what he really wanted to call the Illuminati was bees. He wanted to say bees. But somebody else had already used that. <laughs> so you're saying the Illuminati is really about 250 years old? Well, Adam Weishwapwit, the Bavarian chap who, who, who founded it, um, is that was 1776. I, I love how you use British terms, but you don't have a British accent, but you've been living there, so you, so you use chap all the time. Like it's, it's, it's a, Yeah, when I go back home to Chicago, they, they all take the mickey out of me. Oh, there I go again. <laughs> Um, but you know, so, so from Adam Wishwaput, the Freemasonry kind of comes alive and it's got bees everywhere. There's a beehive, which is a symbol of eternal wisdom on, on George Washington's Masonic regalia. Um, Aleister Crowley is wearing a beehive hat 
you look at certain politicians, they're wearing bead brooches. Madeleine Albright would wear a bead brooch for all her important negotiations. But I think one of my favorite traditions that's made it to modern times is the telling of the bees. And if you're a beekeeper and you die or there's a wedding and you're a beekeeper and you don't tell the bees prior to the evening before, they're going to bugger off. They're going to leave. So it's a great newspaper clipping from a beekeeper in England. Uh, he loved his bees. He sang to his bees every day and he died. Um, they told the bees that he died and cause they knew that that's what they had to do. Um, a few days later, several miles away, they had his funeral and they were putting the casket into the ground. And someone said, what, hang on, what's that single file from several miles away? All the bees came and just flew around, landed on his coffin and rested. I mean, it's amazing the connection that beekeepers have with, um, with their bees. Wow. So let's play a game. And that is Jeff becomes the great Gatsby sort of. So if I wanted to fool the world, like I, and I had like a limited budget, but let's just say I've got a $10,000 budget. I'm going to, I'm going to get the nicest suit I can get, the nicest outfit I can get. And, but one of those things I'm going to have to get to look the part, I'll, you know, I'll get a black and, and a yellow striped ascot and get a beautiful B lapel pin to put into my, you know, my, my suit, well, lapel. Um, and if I go to like, say the Waldorf Astoria bar or, or, you know, the, the <laughs> four seasons in Paris or something that that will be some secret that somebody there will know and like, let me into some secret society. If I just shut up, Maybe I will, I will be initiated if I don't talk too much. It's entirely possible. Uh, stranger things have happened. It would be a sign of initiate knowledge, that's for sure. Okay, follow-up question. Do you have about $12,000 I can borrow? <laughs> well, we, we can talk about that. Excellent. Okay. Because, I mean, it's for research purposes. I mean, you could probably yeah. write it off. Yeah. And, and are, have you ever done uh, – how is this for a bizarre question? I'll, I will ask you. Have sure. you ever done yoga? Once. Once. That's more than I've done it. So I'm not, not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not a yoga person. I wish I was. But there's four different um, disciplines or phenomena where the participant has unambiguously said, while I was doing it, I heard bees. They never said, I heard a buzzing sound, I heard a humming, I heard bees. And they are near-death experience, experiences. So people who have had NDEs are adamant they heard bees. Apparitions. So at Fatima, the children said, no, I didn't hear a humming, I didn't hear, but there were bees. We heard bees. Bees were everywhere. Um, alien abduction, alien abductees claim to hear the sound of bees and yoga. When you're deep into the meditative state of yoga, people report the sound of, of bees humming. Well, let's, let's, let's take it even a little bit further and then right into, I mean, 
the medicine balls that you hear in, in Nepal, and that sounds yeah. a little bit like humming. The what, what's the instruments in in Australia? The Aboriginals like they swing it around. That's how it makes a humming sound, buzzing yeah. sound as well. Yeah. Also, what what's the long wooden like almost like a pipe, but it's, it's got a long name. Yeah, um, Dujarati something something. Yeah, Dujaradu or um, yeah, they're they're big. They're big here at uh, sites like uh, Glastonbury and Avery. Um, they're amazing, and that that makes sort of a buzzing sound as yeah. well. It has a real reverberation to it, doesn't it? Yeah. So I wonder if those it's, instruments were created to try to recreate that that sound in nature that was so important. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and you know it's it's still um, it's still something that is coming through in modern times. This this thread. Look at Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> yeah, one place I didn't think we were going to go today. <laughs> have a bear who loves honey, but it's a true story of a Canadian soldier who brings a bear to the London Zoo, and, that, and that's and that's Winnie. Um, and this 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 kind of you know, just infusing a little bit of the importance of bees into children's um, stories has has kept the tradition a little bit alive. And you have all the uh, the beehive style hairdos, uh, the Ronettes, Lana Del Rey, Amy Winehouse, um, big beehives hairstyles, and you have all the films as well. I mean. Bees have been demonized in film. Just nasty movies about killer bees and swarms and hives of horror. Murder uh, hornets. You know, yeah, and, and, and they're probably wasp anyways. They should leave bees alone. It's yeah. a whole different uh, genre. Uh, it, it, we have Jerry Seinfeld to, to thank for, for his bee movie. Um which has uh, two of my favorite lines: "Born, uh, born to be wild," and "Bees, they're only in it for the honey." Okay. Well, we just came up with the uh, the, the name of the show, which is "Born to Be Wild." That's good. <laughs> um, but I, I think, I, sort of, I guess, perhaps in, in closing, I think we're probably coming up to the time. You tell me. But uh, you, you think, okay, the United States. Where do we have this symbolism? Well, the original um, flag had a a beehive um, uh, underneath the, the eagle's foot. Really? Way way back. But my favorite is what's the most iconic? Wait wait wait! Before we, where, where we can where can we find that image? That well, it will be on my website. But also take a look um, at. Uh, Utah. Uh, that gets really interesting. Brigham Young, the whole region, not just Utah, but that whole western region, including large parts of California, the Mormons called Deseret. And we didn't really go into Deseret much, but it is another name for B. And you find B symbolism everywhere with the Mormons. And again, the Mormons in the Jardite writings, which are very sacred old writings, talk about coming from the Middle East with bees across Europe uh, into Mesoamerica, then up to North America with their bees. And they named their region Bee. 
<laughs> well, what is where is the word Deseret from or Deseret? Is it, what's the word? Is it Greek? Is it is it uh, uh, Levantine? Jardine. I'm sorry, what? Jardine. And what's Jardine? Uh, uh, Jardine, who were the, the the original sort of um, precursor to the Mormons. Okay, and where where did they come from? So they came from uh, the Middle East, and uh, I, I've written a lot about. Um, uh, the Mormons and their journey. You can find the article uh, on my, my website. Um, everyone kind of respectfully sometimes makes fun that we've all seen the Book of Mormon play and we've all laughed until we cried. But it is a really serious piece of literature uh, full of historical elements and uh, details about the Jardites traveling from the ancient world again, across Europe, um, where they departed in boats may not have been um, where you think it was. It could have been in China. And they take boats um, to the, the, the western coast of, of Mexico and then up into the States. And it's an incredible piece of history that nobody really pays any attention to. And it's all about bees. Being, bringing bees and naming their region a multi-state region in the western United States, uh, Deseret, which well, was their name uh, for bees. Well, now there's see, I, I love well, almost every show leads me to other shows, and and uh, I mean this one's led me to at least two. One is uh, on Mithras, which again might be you, maybe not. We're not going to talk about that right now. You'll let me know at a future date if that's something you can talk on, but. I've had a guest on the show three times who's a former Mormon ordained minister, and uh, maybe he'd want to. I mean, he's very open about all of that stuff. We've we've done actually three of the shows I'm proudest of the the apocryphal uh, gospels, the the question of indigeny, and we just did one basically on the on the sex of Christianity, just trying to you know basically Christianity for dummies, like what's the difference between Presbyterian and Catholic and things like that. Um, but uh, maybe I'll ask him about the the. Is it Jardite? Yes, it's, it's the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon, Book uh, of Mormon. That, that features it, and and he'll know all about it. Um, oh yeah, he will. And and interestingly, um, yeah, because it's so visual, I just skipped right over it. But this Mormon, Book of Mormon tradition of the Jardites dragging their boats across the ancient lands before they embark across the ocean to Mesoamerica, then the, the uh, North America. That's exactly what you find in the Eastern Egyptian desert is images of men dragging a boat. And in the boat is somebody with plumes in their head like a bee and next to a beehive. So I think it's depicting the Jardites, the the modern day Mormons, um, doing just what they said they uh, did in the Book of Mormon going across ancient lands with bees because cultures who leveraged the the byproducts of bees flourished. Those who didn't perished. And on this image, you said of the going back to the original flag of the United States, um, besides your website, is there, if like people want a double source, if they wanted, what could they go to the Smithsonian? Could they, you know, just, uh, go I- images of the U S flag or Betsy Ross or whatever. I mean, where, where would they find, uh, images of this to, to double source it? Yeah, I mean, you're going to find them in all sorts of places. I, 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 I hesitate to say that that 
that few have kind of pulled all those pieces uh, together um, in, in one sort of linear view. I, again, I have a three-part series on the bee that we've kind of just brushed over, then some really detailed elements of the bee uh, that I would encourage people to, uh, to take a look at on the, on the website um, because it's, it, you'll, you'll find it in just amazing places. So if you were to go to the Smithsonian, uh, you would see loads of images of beehives in Old Masonic regalia and old versions of, of flags. Uh, you know, it was everywhere. Um, and, and the one piece that I, I think is just so poignant um, is Washington's monument, that obelisk. Wow. I mean, it's the most iconic thing in all the United States, probably. Washington's monument, okay. uh, casting that, 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 that shadow onto the, the water. Incredible. But what does it say? On Washington's monument, it says... To our Lord, the honeybee. I had no idea. I, I had no idea. I, I'm at probably what was on the tour, or maybe they said it then. Holiness to the Lord, Deseret, to be precise. Again, Deseret meaning honeybee, honeybee in 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 Jardite terms. So I, I did. I did. Unfortunately, say it, it's it's a little confusing and convoluted. And it's a very visual thing. So have a look at my website. You'll go oh. He was mumbling about that. Okay, I can see it now. That makes sense. That's fine. I'm, I'm happy to drive traffic to your website. Uh, so <laughs> it's just andrewgoff.com? Yes. Spell your last name it's for the folks. Um, G-O-U-G-H. Okay. So andrewgoff.com or .co.uk. Okay. And uh, and one word, Andrew Goff, right? Yes. Okay. Perfect. Um Anything else you want to leave us with with the bees? Anything going on more, you know, now that we should be looking at that's just under our nose, that's available to us, that we sh that we're we're just not seeing because it's right there. Um, no, I, I don't think so. I, I think I think uh, let, let's look for all the symbolism that is uh, out and about now. Um, we we're talking about this slaughter of the bull, signifying going from Taurus to Pisces. We're now, you know, in ancient times. Uh, in the when Arius uh, uh, in in the sky they worship rams, and when Taurus was in the sky they worship bulls. When Pisces was in the sky they worship worship fish, i.e., Christianity. And now we've moved into Aquarius, and what does that mean? Are we going to worship water? So keep watching the symbolism. I think these are very interesting times to be living in. Indeed. Um... I have one question for you, and I don't know if you answered it and I missed it. Um, but at some point, the bee was tied to the goddess mother. Uh, and at some point, we switched to more god as king patriarchal. But yet the, the bee, as being uh, very important and venerated, survived that. Uh, how, I guess, is the question? Is it just because of the... The properties of it were so important that it was it was just sort of like the Romans took the Greek and Egyptian gods and made them their own. Uh, so they just sort of did the same thing. Or did was it purposeful? Or is it because yeah. someone is telling us that the goddess uh, is still in charge? Well, I mean, from a known times, um, uh, the goddess, and in, we've seen Egyptian times, 
neat. Um, but in, in Minoan times, uh, Patina, the, uh, the mistress of the labyrinth, they were all bee goddesses. And then in Greek times, it becomes... Athena and Artemis. I mean, there's actually statues of them with just coated in bees. Um, so it's unambiguous. But I think the most interesting um, kind of, I don't want to say stealing of that symbolism, the Masons probably just didn't understand it was a queen. They called it a king. So for the most part, the, the, the bee goddess symbolism has uh, persevered the, the, the patriarchy trying to suppress it, but ever so quickly, one of the most bizarre things one of, I've written about this at length in my website is that the most famous manifestation of the bee goddess was Cabela. Uh, Cabela was a bee goddess whose most famous manifestation was a meteorite. Um, and this meteorite was kept in a remote part of Turkey and Rome was losing the war to Hannibal. There were meteorites falling. Um, they consulted this, uh, these ancient things called Sibylline texts, which were actually written by bee goddesses earlier. And they said, this is bad. This is really bad. Rome is in danger. You have to go get the bee goddess. Go get Cabela and bring her here. So they go, and there's a photo on my, my website of the place where this meteorite used to be. They pick it up. The people are honored that Rome wants it. So they, they, they have a big procession with, with all kinds of dancers. And the dancers, by the way, have castrated themselves. That's a whole other story of the kind of veneration that these priests have for the bee goddess. And it comes to Rome, this meteorite does, and it's put up uh, in a temple that's dedicated to a cabella. Uh, I just visited it a couple years ago. But then it disappears from history and it disappears from history at the precise time when the black stone of Kaaba in Mecca appears a meteorite and it has many, many, many of the qualities of Cabela. Um, it's known as the old woman before it was known as Allah respectfully all my uh, Muslim friends it was known as the old woman and 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 priestesses would walk and dance around it naked seven times counterclockwise it was something much different to how it's portrayed now and and and, and this stone which you know Eschenbach says the grail was a meteorite that fell from heaven, I politely ask, could what is in Mecca today, which is a manifestation of Allah, originally have been the greatest manifestation of a bee goddess, and may it even be the Holy Grail. Wow. That is, that is a great place to probably close things out. But because I don't know how to make a good ending, and I have this doofy question that I need to ask you, because Rome seems to have been saved by the bee goddess, is there somewhere in the Roman eagle or something like that where there's a bee image and we just, or I just haven't seen it? Well, you know, it's a great question. And Rome is unbelievably packed with bee symbolism 
the Pope has bees on their gowns, and and it's the the, the Barberini family um, changed their family crest. It, it, and by the way, this is off the top of my my head. Talking about bees is something I did for like a decade, and I haven't spoken about them, if I'm honest with the listeners, in about three or four years. So uh, if I'm pausing and trying to, to gasp for, for pieces of information I used to have off the tip of my tongue, that's why. But the Barberini family had three flies in their family crest, and they're like, well, we're going to change it to bees. And so there's bees everywhere in Rome. Uh, I mean, uh, in the 17th century, um, you know, there's fountains everywhere. There's there's uh, regalia. There's incredible statues, huge statues. Um, uh, you know, three, four foot long statues of bees everywhere, and it's because how prominent the Barberini family was. That's great, uh, amazing stuff. Andrew is always tying so many things together, um, tying uh, a lot of uh, uh, dots there with facts. A little speculation, which we love to do here on The Garden, and and a lot of supposition and a lot of theories, which are really, really interesting. Um, I don't know. Really cool stuff. I appreciate it. I look forward to talking to you again uh, next month about René Chateau um, and uh, maybe other stuff, too. Who knows? Um, and I know that you're part of the uh, next Nephilim Anthropology Conference as well, which... Uh, They've kindly named me as a, I think, a, a panel or a chair moderator. So something I'm not exactly clear where my role is to be yet, but that's okay. The conference is many months away, and that's par for the course with any conference. But I'm just honored and humbled to have even been included on that pamphlet as a, it, it named with esteemed speaker just because of, of my. Uh, I keep calling it a little podcast, which is which is dopey, uh, but. Actually, just we got some statistics from one of the networks we're on, and apparently, in entertainment, we were 193rd in the U.S., uh, something like 179 in Ireland, and like 154 in South Africa. So, my question to the to the world is the rest of the English speaking world, anyway, is start listening, pick up the pace. Come on, UK, Andrew, you can help me with the UK. Um, and in the U.S., we dropped 35 spaces. So, at some point, we were in the 150s. Um, I think maybe Leo scared them. Um, but, uh, but that's okay. That, that, listen, that's his presentation. That, that's all right. But I had no idea. <laughs> no idea. I've never looked at numbers. No one believes me. Uh, my former partner Shaheen used to look at numbers because he's a, he's a podcast, uh, veteran. He's been doing it for like a decade. So he, that was just part of his life. Um, and that, that's a story that nobody cares about. But, uh, uh, when I got that, I was, uh, you know, so if it sounds like I'm bragging, I am, but it's also out of shock. I, I, I don't know how else to process it. I don't know who else would care except for the listeners to know you're not alone out there. There's other people in other countries uh, on different continents listening also, and we're happy to have you all. But Andrew, thank you so much for being part of the show a second time. Look forward to having you again and probably again and again. And it's a pleasure and you, you've got your font of information and if you thought that you were pausing or gasping or I barely noticed it at all, of course, I'm almost 53. So that's part of my natural thinking process anyway. So, uh, uh, yeah, so there you go. See as well, if you're older then then you have a built in excuse that's just, you know, you know, I, I just like to say I'm searching for the perfect word as opposed to, uh, you know, regular words. But again, exactly. 
thank you so much. I know it's it's five hours later there, so appreciate you, and we're going to talk soon. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Jeff. Speak soon, and I look forward to uh, speaking with your listeners again um, next month. Me too. Thanks so much. Okay, folks, so we just said goodbye to Andrew. That that was the um, noise you heard was hanging up on Skype, and that was probably him hanging up on Skype that you just heard as the, the second. But, yeah, really interesting stuff. You'll probably never look at bees the same and probably never think about bees the same, and neither will I. Um, so amazing, and we're lucky enough to, that we're going to have Andrew on again, and I don't even want to tease it, but it's going to be – an entirely different topic, but it's that's going to also be very interesting stuff, or at least I hope so. Uh, and that's the thing about this show. I, I I hope that at this point that you sort of figured out that you know I'm going to try to take you places where you're not normally going to be, hear things that you're not normally going to hear, and even if you don't like one show or one topic or don't agree with the the speaker doesn't matter uh that that's you're right you're you're just here to to listen and if you don't agree with it that's fine or part of it that's fine it's just informational or entertainment uh if you do you can consider part of it educational and the show is definitely a variety of where my curiosities take me and uh as i was saying earlier hopefully you just trust me to take you someplace that if i'm curious about it you're probably curious about it um, and if you're expert on it, maybe, you know, you'll learn new things or maybe you'll disagree with some of it and you'll reach out to me and say, hey, that's not the right interpretation. Or that's not mine. And who knows? Maybe you'll be a guest someday. Um, but anyway, thanks as always. Uh, obviously, I'm in a talkative mood about thankfulness because I just got those numbers and I'm <laughs> again, I really am floored by them. Uh, but so thank you to listener. Please spread the word. Give us a review, five stars if you please, um, and and actually written reviews, even something short. They really do help. They get the show suggested. I I'm a little bit shy about doing that, about you know trying to coax promotion. Uh, I'm a firm believer in organic word of mouth and referrals, but there's a lot of podcasts out there, and there's a lot of competition. And I was talking to somebody in the in one of the other networks. You know, we're on the Rational Rage Network. Shout out to those guys. Uh, and uh, yeah, those men and women. And we're also on the Wrestling Soup Network. And I was speaking to one of the um, uh, proprietors, I'll say, of the Wrestling Soup Network. And he said to me, I've worked on a lot of podcasts. And out of all of them, this is not a direct quote, but he said, you're just sort of far, far alone there in the galaxy. And, you know, I, I <laughs> it wasn't an insult. It wasn't a compliment, they said. But I took it as a compliment. I'm basically like, thank you that, uh, you know, cause that's what I was trying to do. There's thousands of podcasts out there. And my goal was to create something different. Um, otherwise what's the point? Um, I, you know, so I want to create a unique product. So it seems like that's the case. Um, so again, thank you. I'm going to stop rambling. Talk to you next week.
competition never waits. Take your gear on the go with a custom pack built to protect it. Because any place can be an arena. Game on. The Tumi Esports Capsule. Available on Tumi.com and select Tumi stores. Streaming only on Peacock. John Wayne Gacy killed 32. Straight from the killer's mouth. They want you to believe that I alone committed these murders. The new gripping six-part documentary series, John Wayne Gacy, Devil in Disguise. All episodes streaming now, only on Peacock.